Good afternoon, church. My name is Brett. I'm pastor of this people. It's good to see all of you, but especially our guests. Welcome. Glad to have you here. Well, happy St. Patrick's Day. To all of you who look like me, you're thinking, really? St. Patrick was an amazing man. And we as the church probably need to take back some things that have been stolen by the world. Uh, St. Patrick's Day is more than a day just to commemorate green or to get as drunk as possible with green beer. St. Patrick was a tremendous man. The age of 16 in the 4th century A.D., he was taken captive by the Irish. He was a Brit in England. And he was a slave for six years. Was a shepherd for some Irish people. And somewhere in the neighborhood of his early 20s, he decided, I'm going I'm to escape. So he, he left Ireland, escaped slavery, and came back to his home, Britain. All during the while, he loved God. But when he got back home, he decided he needed to be trained as a priest. Got trained. Well, he tried to figure out how in the world do I incorporate my past with my future. While in, in Ireland, he learned their native language, which was some, something akin to Gaelic. Very few people knew that in Britain. And the Lord began to stir something on the inside of him to say, go back. He went back through all of Ireland and won Ireland to Jesus. Not just one person, won the nation. The nation. So as we talk about what it means to remember St. Patrick on St. Patrick's Day, he's an apostolic hero in church history. He's ours. Black, white, Latino, Asian, he's ours. So we need to, at some point, recapture some of those historic moments heroic moments of people who probably were not thought of as much or nobody figured they'd do much and yet they changed the world. Sound like you? Turn with me over to the book of Acts. We're going to continue our series on the cross today. The title of this message is Cross Cut. Cross cut. We're going to look at two passages, Acts chapter 2, verse 36 through 39, and then Acts chapter 5, verses 27 through 33. Acts chapter 2, the backdrop is Peter's preaching, the main apostolic leader of the church in Jerusalem. This is his first sermon. He's preaching as a result of what God did on the day, what we call day of Pentecost where the Holy Spirit fell upon the 120 believers who were remaining disciples of what Christ had done during his earthly ministry. The Holy Spirit fell upon them. They began to speak in new tongues. Tongues of fire appeared over their head. A, a violent rushing wind sound came in the room where they were all uh, abiding, and the Holy Spirit filled them. As a result, they kind of poured out into the street. And as they poured out into the street, they were still speaking in tongues, yet it sounded to the hearers as if they were speaking in the language to which the hearers were born. And at that time, there were people from every nation under heaven 
that were Jewish abiding in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. Now, Pentecost happened to be a feast where the Jewish people were required to come to celebrate God giving them their ingathering, the first harvest, the first fruits of the harvest season. And so they were to come and remember the God who was their provider, who helped them and was faithful to feed them and give them uh, their, their produce and to worship this God who provided for them. The men of Jewish lineage were required to come to Jerusalem for that feast and two others every year, Feast of Passover and the Feast of Booths. The Feast of Booths was to remind them of the moment when they were, their ancestors were in the wilderness and they had no home and so they had to live in tents and how God provided manna in the wilderness and how he provided quail in the wilderness. They were to rehearse their history so they would realize God is not just the God of history. He's the God of the present. And he wants to do the same thing he did for my daddy, for me, and even more so. And then, of course, the Feast of Passover, which celebrated their freedom from Egypt and how God passed over them as a result of the blood on the doorposts. And the firstborn was spared in Israel, though the firstborn died in Egypt. And that Passover was to be celebrated every year representing and marking their time of freedom when God delivered them from bondage. Here at the Feast of Pentecost, you had all these Jews from every nation under heaven there for the purpose of remembering God's provision and thanking him for it. God decided to show up on that day in uh, power and baptize his disciples in the Holy Spirit. And now these disciples were going to experience an ingathering. God loves to leverage moments and speak more than just the natural. 3,000 folk were about to get saved on this day. First fruits. Acts chapter 2, verse 36 through 39. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain. Now Peter's preaching. Know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? 38, and Peter said to them, Repent, and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise, verse 39, is for you and your children, and all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call to himself. Acts chapter 5, verse 27 through 33 Details the account of the disciples now, the apostles, being imprisoned, being released from prison, and then being recaptured by the religious elite in Jerusalem. The church now is somewhere in the neighborhood of 10,000 people. Months have passed since the day of Pentecost. And Peter and James and John are still preaching about Jesus. People are getting saved. Miracles are happening. It's pretty phenomenal in Jerusalem. The religious leadership of the day is intimidated by, the, by this new religion's influence, these people who are coming, who are proclaiming Jesus. And as they attacked Christ, they are now going to try to attack the disciples. They bring them in for questioning. And Luke is writing, and he begins to recount the Inquisition. Acts chapter 5, verse 27 through 33. It says, when they had brought them, they stood before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to, to bring this man's blood upon us. 
29, but Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as prince and savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. 33. But when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and intended to kill them. Lord, help us as we study. Here we've got basically the same message preached to two different crowds. One responds with, what can I do? Is there any hope for us? Peter, what can we do? The other responds to hearing the message of the cross with, let's kill the messenger. One realizes this cutting in my life is like a surgeon. And he's trying to get at something that can't be got at any other way. I need the surgery in my life to remove sin and selfishness so I might serve him. The other looks at it as a threat, a war weapon. And he says, I'm going to war back. And I'm going to fight. And I'm not going to let that influence me. I'm going to control things. I'm not going to let God control me. The message of the cross cuts, and there's no way to get around it. It's painful. There's nothing appealing and nice about the cross. There's nothing sweet. There's nothing, nothing about it that, that brings joy. It says over in the book of Hebrews that when Jesus thought about the cross, he thought about the joy before him. He endured the cross. That the joy that was set before him allowed him the privilege of enduring the cross. The cross is painful. Now, you can get some, to some phenomenal joy after you die. You can get to some joy like you've never thought possible once you let the nails go in your hands, once you feel them in your feet, once you sense the expiration of your life. Then you can experience some joy. But you cannot get there without going through the cross. There's no circumventing the cross to find God's will. We don't follow him in order to get. We don't follow him just for provision. We don't follow him for his blessings. We don't follow him in order to get what's in his hand. We follow him because we love him. And it requires, proper following requires that we lay down our lives and give it away for his benefit. That we no longer take them up for hours. That we don't do what we want to do, when we want to do it, how we want to do it. We do his bidding. We say, God, give me your will and not mine. Tell me what you want to do. I no longer want to be the director of my own destiny. I'm not trying to figure out how I can climb the corporate ladder without you involving yourself in my process. Yes, I want to be successful in this world, but not by myself. I desperately want you to tell me where I should go, what I should do, how I should say what I should say. You are my God and no other, and I will not take your place. You know you make a really bad God. You really do. You're horrible. Me too. Horrible. Horrible. You, are, you get lost all the time. 
You don't know where to go. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. You don't know what's going to happen in the next five minutes. And you are, you're barely able to interpret what happened yesterday. You make a really bad God. And God knows the end from the beginning. And he knows the best pathway to get us where we need to be. We don't know any of that. So we're flying blind constantly. Yet we still want to take the reins of our own lives. We want to take the steering wheel and say, I think I know best. Yet every time we do it, whether it's a day or whether it's a lifetime, we usually wind up in the spot of our own failure of cul-de-sacs. Dead ends that got us no place that prompt us to come to church, to pray, God, get me out of this. Lord, help me. And once he delivers us, what do we do? Thank you. I'll take it from here. We go back to the same old strategy that got us into trouble that prompted us to pray. We wind up in the same old cul-de-sac of failure. And we think, well, here we are again. Okay, God, deliver me one more time. And we don't learn our lesson. Boy, it would be smart if we started with, God, I give you. Rather than, Lord, deliver me. It would be smart if we started with, Lord, today is your fresh 24. Map it out for me. Rather than, let me think where I ought to go today. If there's any good example of how poor we are in terms of direction, it's Siri. (laughs) Siri doesn't know where she's going. Now, if y'all don't know what Siri is, you don't have an iPhone 4S. Or higher, iPhone 5. Siri's lost all the time. And now they've created a program in Siri where she apologizes for taking you to the wrong spot. <laughs> you just keep getting lost. You, Siri, we're not there. Siri, go. I'm sorry. I'm doing the best I can. <laughs> she says that now. She says that. I get mad at Siri because she doesn't know where she's going. But that's the best human beings can do. The best we can do. Try to get close. At least you're in the right state. We don't know. We don't know. We don't know. But he does. And I don't know why in the world we get so insecure about our purpose and tomorrow that we feel like we got to take the steering wheel. God, I don't don't know if you really understand where I am. I don't know how much I can trust you with this. This is where we say, not my will. Your will be done. The cross cuts. It offends all your sensibilities. It doesn't let you lead. It doesn't even think you have very good ideas about leading. It doesn't take into account that you're fairly smart as far as people go. That in in the grand scheme of knowledge of all things in the universe, you do not even have a thimbleful God understands so much more than we. And he is so much better at being him than we are. His will is going to cut us. You who have fallen in love, you believer you, you Christian you, 
yet the person you've fallen in love with is not. You willing to pick up your cross then? Oh, you think you know better? Well, he'll get saved. At some point, I just keep taking him to church, and I believe he'll get saved. He'll get saved. I know he'll get saved. I keep praying. He'll get saved. I love him too much. You're going to be in a very dark place after you say, I do. Now, before you say, I do, he is definitely Mr. Wrong. He ain't Mr. Right. He's Mr. Wrong. But after you say, I do, he Mr. Right now. He's Mr. Right. You got to stay with him. And you made your bet. You should have picked up your cross before you said, I do. Because you're trying to pick it up now and ask God to deliver you, help you, strengthen you. I don't know how I'm going to live with this man. He won't go to church with me. He won't raise our children right. He won't serve God. He goes out on Saturday night. I don't know where he's going. I, you chose him. You wanted him so bad you got him. You got him. You got him. Happy are you, aren't you? Happy, right? Happy, happy. This is what you prayed to me for. <laughs> Lord, you blessed me with this career. I can't go to the mission field. You've given me a great job. I can't leave all this and go to Africa and care for orphans. No, no, no. That can't be your will. I rebuke you, devil. I rebuke you. This money's too good. This money's too good. They're about to give me a promotion. I can't leave now. Maybe later. I'll pick up my cross later. The cross cuts against every sensibility that you've got. I really got right with God in March of 1981. I'd prayed prayers before, but I don't know how effective they were because I don't know exactly why I was praying, whether it was to get delivered of the guilt I had at the moment or whether I really wanted to serve God. I don't know. But I know in March 81, I got right. The Lord changed my life. I repented. And I haven't changed, I haven't, I haven't changed direction since. Somewhere in the process between March and December, I, I felt called to God to preach this gospel. Now, I was about the only one who knew I was called. <laughs> Nobody was coming to hear bread preach. They weren't interested in what I had to say. I would literally stand out in the middle of campus at Indiana University three times a week between classes and just start talking to people about Jesus. That's your pastor. I'm the guy. I didn't have a megaphone. I just start talking. I wasn't confrontive. I wasn't caustic. I was conversational, just like I'm doing now. I start preaching on a grassy area as students were walking by. I just start preaching the gospel three times a week, every week, because nobody was asking me to take a pulpit. I said, I'm going to make my own. <laughs> I just got out there and started talking to people. And after about three months, folks started getting right. I'd see them born again. A little crowd would develop after I started preaching. And then afterwards, I'd go to people who were interested. I'd lead them to the Lord, take them to the church, get them baptized. I figured, you know, this, this is fun. I enjoy this. I didn't see a bright light. I didn't hear this voice out of heaven that just shook the earth and said, Brett, I've called you to preach the gospel. I just, I said, this is fun. I enjoyed it. Somebody's got to do this. 
That's what I felt every day. And it kept growing to where I realized I can't do anything else. It's all I can do. Now, this is my story. This is after I had accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And do you know how many options there are for people to do other stuff than preach the gospel? I mean, you're going to heaven. There's a lot of stuff you can do that ain't sin, that, that is still presentable, but it may not be perfect for you. There are a lot of options, and I had one. My daddy was a dentist, and I was accepted to Meharry Medical School, Nashville, Tennessee. That was his alma mater. And I was going to be a dentist just like my dad. I was going to go ahead and take over his practice when I finished in 1986. And I would support him in, in his retirement. I'd take over all his, his patients. And I would have no overhead. And about 80 grand in 86 in Kansas City. That's rich, y'all. <laughs> that was rich for a brother coming out of school. And my daddy was set. That's where I was going. I was supposed to enroll in August of 1982. So I finished school early, three and a half years, in December of 81. And I thought I'd give this calling thing about nine months to try to mature and see if I really was good at it and if God had really called me. And maybe my daddy might get a little bit more warm to the idea if I had some success. And he wouldn't be so upset if I had to resign my, my seat at Meharry. And that didn't work. <clears throat> so I came up about May and June of 1982, and the Lord spoke to me through a number of different ways that I needed to come here to Washington, D.C. At that point, I was at Indiana University when I got right with God. Came here to Washington, D.C. in August of 82. Before that time, I had to tell my daddy that I wasn't going to go to Meharry in Nashville, Tennessee. <sighs> so conversation was something like this. Dad, um... I'm, I'm, I'm not going to go <clears throat> to Meharry, and um, I, 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 I'm not supposed to be a dentist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but what you going to do? Well, I think I'm called to go to Washington and, and um, uh, start a campus ministry at Howard University and, and help plant a church. Mm-hmm. So who's asking you to come? <laughs> Howard, is Howard giving you a job? Um, no, sir. Mm-hmm. You, you know, they don't take prayers at Safeway. You know that, don't you? <laughs> they, they don't, this, 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 is the way, this is the way a black daddy talks to a black son. <laughs> they don't take prayers at Safeway, boy. You know that. Yes, sir. Well, how, how, you, how you gonna get paid? You got any money? No, sir, um, I don't. But, but I thought I'd raise my support. You're going you're to raise your support. From where? <laughs> well, I was thinking maybe you could give me some of your friends, and then you want to go raise support from some of my friends who are hoping that you would go to dentistry school because I bragged about you? Boy, we raised you better than to beg. I ain't giving you my friends. Don't call them. My boy doesn't beg for nothing. He's self-sufficient. He ain't go ask people for money. Have you lost your mind? Who are you? This is how black, black kids are raised. <laughs> this is how we raise. 
said, I'm sorry, Dad. So I came here to Washington in 82, August, roughly between $400 and $600 a month. And two-thirds of that came in every month. That's how I lived. Sometimes the cross hurts more than others. At that moment, I lost my daddy relationally. I didn't know how I was going to get him back. Long and short of it is, he moved here to Washington. I moved him here to Washington because he was ill. And he wound up being a resident of my home. And I uh, cared for him like he cared for me when I was a child. He had lung cancer. And he became the strongest member of my church. So the thing he hated the most supported him the most. Got right with God and baptized him in my tub in my house. And he's in glory waiting for me right now. Jesus said this in Luke 14. If you want to be my disciple, you can't love mama and daddy more than you love me. Can't. He said it like this. He who wants to follow me has to hate his mother and father. Now, he's the same God, as I said last week, who also said, honor mom and dad. So what was he saying? He wasn't trying to counterdict, counteract, contradict what he said earlier. What he was doing is bringing balance to a society that had said, you obey mom and dad before you obey God. He said, let me fix this. You cannot put them before God. You want to be my disciple. You can't do that. So I had to, I had to take the cross and say, I apply it to my family. My relationships is painful. God, I love my family. My dad, all I wanted to do every day of my life is to make him happy. That's all I wanted to do. And now he doesn't even want to talk to me. What do you do when the cross hurts like that? Do you bow to the pressure of relationship and say, I'm going to take the easier road? When I came here, it's not like people rolled out the red carpet and said, we've been waiting for you. Washington needs you real bad. No, no, no. People were staying away in crowds. Multitudes. I preached to Auditoriums like this was six folk. Six folk. And, and three of them didn't want to be there. <laughs> it's not like I had any success. I wasn't a very good minister. I didn't know how to be. I wasn't a great leader. didn't know how to be. I was 21. I hadn't lived long enough to have any successes yet or failures enough to learn from. I was, I was still green. No, I was in seed form. <laughs> and I realized I just wasn't that good. Loved God, but I just wasn't that good. Not that proficient as a minister. So I made a decision. I said, Jesus, I may not ever be a really good preacher. I may not ever understand my Bible like I should. I might not ever be a really good leader. But one thing I want to be is a good cross bearer. So I want you to know every day I'm going to pick up my cross and follow you. Somehow or another, you're going to make something of me that I'm not yet. I don't know what it's supposed to be like. I don't even know who's supposed to follow me right now. Nobody. But I know this, that if I keep picking up my cross and following you, you're going to figure out how to make bread relevant. You're going to fashion me into something that makes a difference in the world. 
cross cuts. But your response to how it cuts makes all the difference to the kind of of fruit that is going to be in your life later. If you only apply the cross to go to heaven, you'll get it. But that's it. You won't get any fruit here. You won't find the kingdom of God being expressed in ways that God intended when he thought about creating you. You won't find that happening. You'll get to heaven, though. And your joy will be muted by hearing this this echoing voice from glory over your life saying, let's look at the videotape. What were you thinking there? What happened there? What happened there? What happened there? It may not be him asking you the questions as much as the revelation of that comes to you as a result of looking at what you did with your life or did not do, how you wasted moments. The cross needs to be borne every day. It doesn't need to be resisted by you. It needs to be accepted. And when it starts to hurt, that's when you know that it's real. These people in Acts chapter 5 said, we got to do away with this because they are a threat to our authority. They are a threat to our influence. They are a threat to our rulership. I want to be in charge. I don't want them in charge. I don't want God in charge. We've got to let Jesus be in charge. Peter said, you all raised, R-A-Z-E-D, Jesus. You plowed them under because you wanted your will. But God, R-A-I-S-E-D, him. God raised him up, both in life and in resurrection life. We cannot follow the, the blueprint that mankind has that always tries to R-A-Z-E, the will of God, so that their will can be followed. We've got to follow the blueprint that God has, which is to R-A-I-S-E, the will of God in our life, and lower our own. A very different response occurred in Acts chapter 2, though. Peter explains that Jesus was crucified in much the same way he did in Acts chapter 5. And as he's out there preaching, it's an amazing thing. Now, the crowd began to build because all these folk were hearing these disciples talk in the language to which they were born. Now, remember, there were Jews from every nation under heaven, and they spoke in different languages. So if a Jew was from Germany, they spoke in a German accent. They grew up there, but they came to Jerusalem, and they may have known Hebrew. But this day, the Lord was doing something new. And these disciples poured out of this building, speaking of the glories of God in the languages of the people who were there. So good were they at, at dialect that the people said, how is it that, that these Galileans are speaking in the language, the very dialect to which we were born? They were so amazed at that. Now, you know, if you, I took Spanish in the eighth and ninth grade. And, 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 and even if I was good at it, I still had an American accent. You hardly ever lose that. Only people that are great elocutions can do that, cannot have an accent when they go and speak someplace in a different language. Very rare. These people 
heard these Galileans speaking in their very dialect without an accent from Galilee. Now, Peter and James and John and Andrew, all of them were from Galilee, which was about 90 miles north. Jerusalem was a big city. That in Jerusalem, if you will, if I can superimpose our society on theirs, they spoke in uh, Peter Jennings English. Network anchor English. That English that we consider as Americans to not have an accent. But the people from Galilee, they talk like this. They from the country. So they started speaking in the languages to which people were born from all over the world. And it was so surprising that the people of the world who were there, who were Jewish, looked at them and said, this, this is weird. Okay, there are people who speak in my language, but these folk got an accent that's so strong and we can't even hear it because they're speaking so well in my language. How is that? And then they surmised, oh, they got to be drunk. They got to, they've been drinking they, all night partying. That's what it is. They're drunk as they can be and they're out of their mind. At that point, Peter had to stand up and say, no, 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 this is not what you think. It's only the third hour of the day, which meant 9 a.m. This is what the Holy Spirit prophesied about. This is what the prophet Joel spoke of and said, the, the spirit of God is going to be poured out on sons and daughters and, and male and female slaves and everybody is going to be in a new place and God's going to do something special. And it all came about as a result of this Jesus. And he had a wonderful ministry and he went about doing good and preaching to all those who needed to hear something good. And, and this gospel was supposed to be relevant to you. all But verse 36, you messed it up. Because I want you to know for certain that God has made this Jesus who came to you as Messiah. He's made this one you crucified. The promised one that was sent to your generation that every generation of Jewish person who's ever lived has been waiting for. This Messiah that was to save everything and do everything right set up a kingdom unparalleled in human history with unstoppable prosperity and peace. A kingdom whose borders were to not ever be found and whose reign would never end. That's the one who came to you. And you know what you did? You killed him. I want you to know though, God made him regardless of what you did, both Lord and Christ. Now Christ means, Christ is Greek for Messiah. So he's saying God made him Messiah that you, you, you killed, the one you're waiting for, but he was also Lord. And Lord, both in Greek and Hebrew, means God. Now, let me see if I can help you with the impact that that had on these folk. First of all, I, I laid out for you how long they had waited, and they came to this generation, and they blew it. Their parents, their grandparents, Adam and Eve, Abraham, Moses, Elijah, Elisha, David, all those folk had waited, and they came to this generation, and they blew it, and they killed them. That's bad. What if, if you, dear people, though you would never do this, you got mad at somebody and you murdered them. You took them out. And, and, and then to your surprise, three days later, you found out they were alive. <laughs> now, as you were driving to Dulles Airport, <laughs> would it matter what flight you took and where it was going? Just put you on the first one because you gave that dude your best shot and he's back. And you know that when he opened his eyes, the first thing he probably thought about was you. Would it matter where the flight was going? Just put me on it. 
Well, what, what if that person was God? Where are you going to go? Where are you going to go? Know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ as Jesus whom you crucified. They were cut. It says they were pierced. The word there in the Greek is katanuso. And, and for the, the, the word we, we see in Acts chapter 5, it's a different word, but it's a synonym. It's diaprio. And you, you remember what a synonym was. Don't you? Remember second grade English? <laughs> Words that mean the same thing but are different. <laughs> oh, gosh. Synonyms, cutting, getting down the inside. They were pierced down here, deep. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, they replied differently than the fellows that did in Acts chapter 5. What, 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 what can we do? Is there, any, is there any hope for us? I mean, like, we really blew it. This is as bad as it gets. Is, is, there, is there a way we can make amends? How mad is God at us? Is he, is he going to squash us like bugs? Is he, he going to send lightning bolts on us? Now remember, their perspective is all they've heard is Old Testament. And whenever the people did wrong in the Old Testament, he sent them a prophet. And the prophet would tell them how they did wrong and what they're going to do. To, to get as a result of the wrongdoing. There are consequences. So the prophet will come and say, oh, by the way, the air man going to come and, and slap you all around. <laughs> Egypt after them. It's going to be bad on you because you really blew it this time. I'm through with you. I'm done. That's what the prophets would say. So they were looking at Peter as one of those. You messed up royally. And they were waiting for the punch. But Peter didn't give him one. He just sat there. God made him both Lord and Christ. as Jesus whom you crucified waiting for a response and God's still waiting for a response from some of y'all still waiting and then the people respond and say well what can what, what can is peak help is there any help for us Peter says yeah there is listen if you repent if you change your mind and your ways you decide to serve God, not yourselves. If, if you get baptized and, and receive forgiveness of sin, and, and, and then you'll get a gift. God will give you a gift, a gift of the Holy Spirit, and the promises for you, your children, and all who are far off, and many as the Lord our God shall call. I, I wish I was there. I wish I was there because I know the people were waiting for, for, the, for the other shoe to fall. They were waiting for a punch in the mouth, judgment to come. And Peter says, repent, get baptized, be forgiven for everything you've done wrong, and God's going to give you a gift. What kind of God is that? You kill his boy. You kill his boy. His only son. Treat him like dirt. And his response to you is to say, if you change your mind about what you did, I'll forgive you, and then I've got a gift for you. Who kind of who who does that? 
it would take all the character I ever could muster and some of yours too to treat anybody who had killed one of my boys with just forgiveness, much less a gift. I would have to muster up everything on the inside of me of spiritual might to say, I forgive you and mean it. I ain't trying to give him a new car. I'm not trying to bring him into my inheritance. They're not going to be in my will. What kind of God is this? So the people are sitting there listening. And I imagine there was a long pause after Peter said that. And they were, they, they kind of looking on it. You hear what he said? <laughs> All we got to do is we kill God. And all we got to do is repent. And then he going to give us a gift. Yo, me first. Me first, me first. The line was long that day to get right. Because there was an understanding of what they deserved and how they weren't going to get it. They deserved death. They deserved punishment. They did the wrong thing. They did the wrong thing in a big wrong way. And yet God was going to release them from all of their iniquity and all of their transgression, wipe it out, pardon all of their consequences, and on top of that, call them sons, daughters, write them in his will that they might be the inheritors of everything he has. My God in heaven, he is amazing. But see, you don't get to the point of understanding how wonderful the gift is until you really understand what you deserved. And that's where the cross comes in. The cross helps us understand what we deserved because Jesus took our, our place. We deserved death. And he took it for us. And every day we pick it up, it's a picture, it's a symbol of what was done for us and what we need to do for the world. How we need to lay down our lives so that other people can come to the understanding of who Christ is. The cross cuts is painful. We just don't get to do what we want to do anymore. But there's no life like post-cross. Resurrection power comes to the people who have decided to make their cross their best friend. Let's pray.